America's original and oldest heritage pack company, Duluth Pack, hosts a podcast led by CEO Tom Sega. Real stories with real people who we admire, plus outdoor industry conversations, business discussions, entrepreneurial advice, and more. Now enjoy this week's episode of Leader of the Pack. The Flush. So fast, it hardly seems real. So vivid, the moment freezes in time before erupting in a blur of spurs and feathers. It's why we change the way upland loads are built with Prairie Storm. Exclusive Flight Control FlexWad technology and a mix of copper-plated lead and flight stopper pellets combine to create dense, deadly shot strings through any choke. Longer shots, more power, fewer missed birds. Only from Federal. Hey everybody, this is Tom Sega from Duluth Pack, and this is the Duluth Pack Podcast, Leader of the Pack. Boy, do we have a leader today. Our special guest is Jeffrey T. Larson Michelangelo. I added the Michelangelo because we were having a little sidebar earlier here, but Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh my gosh. So I am way out of my comfort zone right now, Jeff, because as we were talking earlier, I have no artistic ability or creative ability in this body. And you are a professionally, classically trained artist. This is going to be really cool because I, I want to just learn from you right now for the next hour. So let's jump right in, Jeff, and talk about your background, where you grew up, what your childhood was like, your influencers and then how you got the artistic bug. Yeah, um, you know, actually I did start up in this area. My dad's first job out of college was, he's an engineer and it was up at the Taconite expansion back in 1962. So I was born in two harbors. Uh, we didn't stick around all that long. We bounced around until I was about six. And then we ended up in the Western suburbs of Minneapolis. And that's, that's where I grew up. In fact, my parents lived there until this last summer, they finally moved up to Duluth. So, um, but Duluth, then, because we started up here, uh, a family would come camping up here a lot. And that played into how I ended up full circle, I guess, coming back. But yeah, grew up in the suburbs, um, typical childhood, played a lot of sports. Um, I drew all the time, but just because I liked it, I didn't think much about it. Um, class artist, you know, that whole thing, I guess. Um, it, it worked in my favor best because uh, I have this personality <laughs> flaw where if I like something, I do it and I really dive in. If I don't like it, I, I don't. I, I passed a lot of book reports by, uh, I get it back from the teacher. It's like, well, I'll give you a D for the report, but an A plus for the book cover. So we'll, we'll bounce it out at B minus. And so anyway, so I guess I just was always strongly drawn to it. I, I didn't, um, didn't take it seriously though. Very much. My, my mom painted as a hobby. Um, actually, I all the way through high school, I, I was um, not sure what I was going to do. And, and then uh, <laughs> with the rest of the football team, we took a pottery, I guess. And I was the only guy that could throw a pot. And so you get a guaranteed C if you went to the Art Institute as an after school you know, um, thing. And so I did. And I'd never seen a real painting before. And I'd grown up, I'd, I'd, as a kid, I'd go to the library, I'd get books on um, Indians and mountain men, hockey players, and art. And those were kind of my three passions. So seeing a real painting was uh, amazing. And I happened to come across a young man who was uh, doing a copy of an amazing painting. We chatted and uh, he told me about this place called Atelier, which I couldn't pronounce either. And uh, but when I came back I, I, home, I told my mom, you, you're a hobby painter. You love to paint. 
we've never gone to the Institute. So several weeks later we went and uh, that young guy was on his last day doing the copy and he remembered me and we chatted and um, he said, you really should, if you like art, you got to check this school out I go to. It was called Atelier Lac. <clears throat> I said, oh, okay, great. And I, I called the uh, gentleman, Richard Lack, who ran it and he said, oh, come on down. And it was, it was like walking back to the 1800s. It was a school um, and we can get into this a little bit later, maybe just kind of the history of it. But the school itself is in, in uptown Minneapolis, and it um, basically was a small little studio with eighteen art young artists, uh, you know, working around the models, setting up still lights. It was it was just like something you'd see, like I said, you imagine back in the eighteen hundreds, which it was based on. The uh, um, let's see, Richard Lack had um, we had several conversations. We, we talked on the phone. He kept saying, you know, if you like art this much, you really need to think about coming to the school I mean you need you know you need a training and I, I don't know and I'd actually signed up for college actually UMD I wasn't sure what I was going to do but um anyway he, he invited me out to his studio and I went out there and I I, I knock on the door I open the door I walk in and it was just like boom it just it just flooded me it's like this is what I'm supposed to do and it just pounded into me that I, I completely switched gears where I want to be an artist how, how do I sign up it made no sense. It was it wasn't a logical decision. And he flipped. It's funny because he flipped on me then. He he's like, no, nah, I don't know if I want you. And I'm like, no, you you've been talking to me about you know I should look at your school. He says, nah, you don't want to be an artist. And we started this argument, and I, I, it just baffled me. I don't get it. You told me you know you, you, we've been having conversations, so I don't get what this is about. And he just says, listen, here's the deal. If I even accept you, which I, I probably won't, um, you're going to have to study four or five years. Um, when you get out, you're going to have to work full-time as an artist, plus probably push a broom or wait tables for another 10 years. You're good enough to even find out if you have any talent. If you decide you do and you still stick with it, you're going to be poor the rest of your life. And I'm like, yeah, sign me up. <laughs> He's like, well, <laughs> take, take some night classes and we'll see what you can do. And at that time, there was... The school itself, again, we can get in there a little bit later, but um, there's probably one of less than 10 left in the world that still offered this training that went back 500 years. And there was a lot of people that would apply and try to get in. So I took every night class. I'd, I'd call them every two, three weeks, bring work that I'd done on the weekends, really just bugged them. And finally, uh, well, it was months. It was I had to call the university and say, I'm not coming. My dad, the engineer, was so proud of his firstborn deciding not to go to college and become an artist. He thought that was great, being really sarcastic. Um, but uh, probably in, in July, he finally said, okay, we'll accept you. So anyway, the first day of school in, in the fall, I'm, I met the assistant uh, instructor and, and I'm telling him the story. And I'm like, I don't get it. He just started laughing. And he's just, you know, that first day you walked into his studio, he called me right after you left. He said, yeah, we got a new student. <laughs> and I'm like, well, what was this whole thing about? He says, he got serious. He, he kind of said, you know, he just knew if you don't fight to get in, you wouldn't fight after you got out to stay with it. And it was pretty wise, actually. Wow. So you were getting a bunch of advice and you had no idea why you were even getting the advice. Yeah, he just wanted to see if I jumped through the hoops. If you had the work ethic, the hoot spot to stick with it and, and, and fight your way through. Yep, exactly. I like that guy already. Yeah, he was a wise man. And, uh, you know, it's funny because people think talent. Yeah, everybody's aware. you got talent. You're talented enough. Talent's common. I mean, think about how many kids you knew in, in grade school, junior high, high school that were amazing athletes. How many are playing pro? And how many could have? You know, it depends on so many variables. And um, 
and the talent really doesn't show until you're as trained as everybody else. And, and then we see what, you know, then the Wayne Gretzky's float to the top and so on. Well, we better not get into hockey because we'll be here for about four and a half hours, uh, Jeff. So pronounce once again, the name of the school, because I phonetically put it here. Uh, I can, I can read Richard Lack, but Altier? It's Atelier is the best. Atelier. And it, it just, uh, my understanding, it translates loosely to the studio well. And so it was a training methodology that formed in primarily Paris in the 1820s, 30s, 40s, where it was more of a private apprenticeship in a sense, where uh, young students would study with uh, one particular artist instead of going to the Ecole des Beaux-Arts or one of the other fine arts academy that was the predominant training methodology back then. Jeff, did you go overseas to study then, or was that taking place here stateside? It was actually in uptown Minneapolis, of all places. Um, like I said, there was probably, we knew of about seven or eight schools left in the world that were still teaching this. Um, it, 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 I guess maybe this would be a good thing to throw out there, is that you know the, the history of Western art, um, and, and my art in particular, since most people have no clue who I am, is uh, is representational, naturalism, realism, whatever you want to say. But it's um, based on, I'm just passionately in love with with, with the nature, with, with the beauty of this world. With um, I see more beauty outside of me than I can ever imagine in my mind. And so it, it, I fell right in from day one as a young child, you know, looking at art books of Michelangelo and Rembrandt and Da Vinci and, and all the great artists. And that history, it started in ancient Greece, um, took a little hiatus during the Dark Ages, and then uh, picked itself back up again in, in uh, the later Middle Ages, and progressed steadily um, all the way until the turn of the 1900s. And it was basically a, a system where one individual had some talent, or whatever you want to say, uh, got a name, young students would come and want to study with them, they'd learn from the master, they'd make improvements or adjustments, they take on students, and generation after generation, best practices were pushed forward. You know, people look back at art history, it's like it, it, it the great, the geniuses, but they would have never existed if it wasn't for this methodology of training, um, like would be in any other field. They, Mozart would have been Mozart without a history of, you know, music conservatories and, and ballet and architecture and literature, you know, we all have our craft. And so that grew steadily until um, until it hit the late 18, 1880s. Probably the in my mind, um, one of the highlights of the history of the art world is in Paris alone. They had more styles, more individuals, more people painting phenomenal paintings in personal ways because of the training. And all that just about disappeared by 1930, 1940. Uh, modernism had come in. Uh, you know, it swept the world. It was the world was changing. Obviously, you had um, you know when the industrial revolution had kicked in, uh, went from an agricultural society primarily around the world to <clears throat> moving into cities. You had uh, Darwin, you know, throwing in a whole new paradigm of secularism. You had um, monarchies and kingdoms and royalties disappearing, communism forming, and it was just a chaotic time. And then they throw in World War One, which was you know, dumb, you know, and through, you know, not only was it horrible, but it, you know, created a final big distrust in the ruling class. Um, it followed by the epidemic, which killed more people than World War One did, and then follow that with the Great Depression. And people were, you know, they wanted change, they wanted modernism, they wanted something new. That's healthy. 
And that happened in all the arts. Uh, you know, uh, in, in music, you had Schoenberg, you had in architecture, you had dance, you had modern dance. So, like, <clears throat> um, it, it, the thing that they didn't do, though, was they didn't throw the baby out of the bathwater. They pretty quickly realized this is really good and healthy to, to experiment, but you're still if you're going to be a modern dancer. You're still going to study ballet. If you're going to be a, um, you know, a tonal musician, you're still going to study Mozart um, and so on and so forth. Except the visual arts, they threw it away. And it only took about a generation and a half, two generations, where there was just a small handful of people left who not only knew how to paint, in this great tradition and all the studio lure and craftsmanship that had been passed on, even a smaller group or handful that were still teaching it. So that's when we get to 1980, where when I came on the scene, um, again, we knew of, it was pre-internet. So maybe there was a few more, you know, unless someone wrote about it or you knew somebody, you didn't hear about it, but um, there really was maybe seven, eight, nine schools left in the world where it was this unbroken tradition going back. And um, Black himself, he had studied with a gentleman named Gamel in Boston, who was uh, born in the late 1800s, who had studied with uh, an American named Paxton, who had studied in the Ecole de Beaux Arts uh, under Jerome, who was probably the most famous artist in the world in that, at that time. Uh, Jerome studied with Delaroque, Delaroque with Gross, Gross with Glear, Glear with David. And David, you'd recognize his painting because he's the one who painted Napoleon rearing up on the horse. So that's my pedigree, I guess, if you want to call it that. Jeff, tell us a little more, more about Richard Lack. I mean, how did he carry then this methodology that was 500 years old forward and and start his school? How did that all come about? Yeah, he, um, he same, kind of the same story as me. He wanted, you know, wanted to be an artist, but he really had trouble trying to find a, a place to paint. In fact, it's a very similar story. Now I'm thinking about it. He, back in the... Um, 50s. Uh, he was in New York and basically came across a guy doing a copy of the painting at the Metropolitan. That, that young guy told him there's an artist up in Boston um, who he studied with. And he was, there was only one other person I can think of at that time who was training people in America. And so Lack went, and I, I think he, he got the same treatment. He went and knocked, he called ahead and went, knocked on the door. And the guy said, well, you, you can't come in and see the I think he made him come back three mornings in a row or something like that before he let him in the studio just to see if he'd fight. And so anyway, he he was real blessed then to to, to meet and study with uh, with Gamble, and uh, and so that's that's where that went. And and Richard Lack, he um, you know, we really stand on the shoulders of giants. He he lived through a time period where no one would buy representational painting really. I mean, he 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 struggled, and he was a phenomenal artist. Uh, a Renaissance man in, in, and a scholar. And um, Gamma was born independently wealthy, so he didn't have to worry about it. And that's one reason he was able to carry on through the first half of the, well, for most of the century. But um, Lack fought and he was, he was tough. And he just knew that it was going to die out and he just formed the school. And uh, he also told me too, he said, you know, the other reason he formed the school, he just wanted someone he could talk to about art that loved it the way he did. And he wanted, he was hoping that someday he'd have enough students well-trained that he could have a good conversation with. That's pretty interesting. Wow. So you and I are right there. We're the same age. So this is, you're, you're studying in Minneapolis from 80 to 84. But in 83, uh, I did some deep diving here and you studied human anatomy. So how did that 
work into your creative and and what you were doing at the time? Yeah. So, um, what you know, what 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 my part of what I want to do in paint is paint portraits and figure pieces and 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 so on. And, and to do so, you need to understand the anatomy, the, the physiology. Uh, and there really wasn't uh, any good courses. I, I ended up calling the. Um, gentleman who ran the <laughs> ran the department at the University of Minnesota and, and I'm trying to explain I wanted to see if I could come and watch an autopsy or you know while they worked on cadavers just so I could understand how the muscles work and do some drawings and he, he's trying to what and, and I what, what are you doing I, I, said, I go to the atelier lab I take night classes there are you seriously yeah come on down I'll get you in <laughs> so he would sneak me in it I shouldn't say well it was 40 years ago so he'd sneak <laughs> in at night and basically, I thought I was going to like watch. He's like, I left one out for you. <laughs> so he'd leave bodies out for me so I could draw. And I would do that um, after hours and, and study the anatomy that way. Wow. You were just so passionate that you wanted to make sure you didn't miss anything. This is, this is really fun. Uh, so then you go to art study throughout Europe. Bring us forward to that. Yeah. So then... Um, uh, then when I got married uh, uh, to, a, um, to Heidi, um, who was a, another artist, um, uh, we basically, we just we scrimped and saved. And our first our first trip over was our honeymoon for a couple of months, and we pretty much just lived in the museums and um, been back a number of times and traveled out through the United States and just spent. Well, ask our kids, <laughs> spent way too much time in museums, but um, it was you know for for an artist, it's like going to school. I mean. You know, the, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. It's all laid there in the canvas. If you know how to look for it, you can understand the technique, how they thought, how they how they saw things, and it just uh, it's always a wealth of information every time I go. And private foundries. So studying bronze castings and finishing. What is that all about, and what does that entail? Yeah. So when. Uh, Welcome to one of the museums that came across the sculptor Rodin, you know, the thinker and, and you know, everybody's pretty familiar with him. And it just stopped me in my tracks. And I, I think I, I, I thought back then, at least, that if I had found a school that was as good in sculpture as, as I had found for painting, I might have switched. I just fell in love with sculpture. So I did that on the side for many years. And so same thing. I, I went and um, kind of worked out a deal and sort of apprenticed at a foundry. I uh, did the basic, a lot of the basic work on my on my own pieces, and basically taught myself how to sculpt and cast bronze and so on. So that was just something I did alongside the full time of painting. So, uh, Jeff, one of the one of the things that as as we're doing research on your career and we're looking at this is we see there's a tremendous amount out there. And folks, Jeffrey T. Larson, you can look him up online. Jeff will get all of your social handles because we want to send our, our viewers to, to look you up at the end here. But there's so many gallery showings and so many exhibitions that you've done with your artwork. First, can you tell us lay people, what's the difference between a gallery show and an exhibition? They, they can overlap, I guess. Um, yeah, they're, they're actually pretty interchangeable. A, a gallery show, you know, there's for the artists, you, you basically have just several avenues of, of, of venues. You know, you, if you're like most artists, not interested in business or, or just not geared that way, or you're shy, 
uh, best is probably to hook up with a good gallery um, and they'll do all the marketing and promotion and selling for you. They'll do it for probably 50% what final price is. And so that's that's the downside. The good gallery is worth it, just like paying for marketing and everything else is expensive, but uh, it's hard to find a good gallery. If you do it on your own, um, like from, from my example, I, it worked out where my, my wife, when she came down to go to art school, she just answered an ad in the newspaper. And it was uh, to be a nanny, housekeeper, so on. Ended up being just the most wonderful family that was, I guess you'd say, old money down in Lake Minnetonka. I think they owned the biggest private piece of property, in fact, on Lake Minnetonka. So very, very well off. After we were married, they became more friends. And we, <laughs> if I kind of rudely and boldly, probably looking back, asked them if they could host a show for us which they did. They were so nice. They opened up their house. We took down everything they had. We hung up all our work. And then they invited, I guess you'd say it was the who's who of you know, uh, Minneapolis and you know, people that own Cargill Corporation, you know, that group. So they came to the show. Actually, it was kind of funny because we put every penny plus some I borrowed from my dad into our show. We just rolled the dice. And like, Here it goes. And they catered it. And it was phenomenal. And people loved it. And everybody had fun. And at the end of the night, we sitting around and looked around. We hadn't sold a thing. <laughs> and so, again, this uh, I'm just not going to mention names. I don't have permission. But the, the woman was so nice. Like, here's what we're going to do. Here's my, here's my private phone number book. Me and my husband are going to go out of town for a week. The house is yours. You get there. And you call everybody that was there. And you tell them to come back. And they need to look at it again. <laughs> that was my that was my first venue in telemarketing, I guess. And in fact, there was I had all these notes. I'm writing, scribbling all the paper. I called this person, I left a message. I didn't get a hold of them. I get a hold of this one lady because I couldn't read my notes anymore. I'm giving her my spiel, and she says, "You know, you've called me seven times. If I come, will you not call me anymore?" <laughs> She then came, you said only if you buy a painting. <laughs> came and bought, she came and bought five pieces and became one of my best clients for the next 30 years. So it actually, at, by the end of the week, we, had, we, we did okay. That became the basis of, uh, we had another show with them. And then we moved it to my parents' house and we moved it to a, uh, an academy. And then I was able to kind of, uh, I had quite a guest list by that time of, of these type of people. So I was able to approach one of the better galleries in the Twin Cities and strike a much better deal than 50-50. If I bring in these clients, I want to have one-man shows with you and here's how we're going to do it. And it turned out to be a real win-win. And we did that for 20 years. Every two, three years, I'd, you know, I'd be off painting on my own. I'd, I'd come back and, and we'd hang the show and we'd have catalogs. And, and you know, it was just a great event. We'd sell most everything and head back north again. Um, and then eventually the, he retired and this is in the Galleria down in the Twin Cities. So it's, it's kind of the luxury mall of the Twin Cities. And the gentleman who owned it um, was also at that time a client. Um, but the, it was kind of nice. The restaurants, the other stores um, uh, asked if he could do, work out some deal because there, a lot of people would come and they, they get business. And so we struck a deal where if a store would leave, he'd give you a call, check, okay, hey, uh, store over, you know, restoration hardware is going to be gone next October. Do you want the space? Like, yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> and so I'd hire a staff and, and um, I had a whole team then and we'd just go into gear and we'd put together a gallery for a month. And um, and that was kind of how we were able to do business. And so to go back to the gallery model, if you if you have a $10,000 painting, 
you've got, uh, you know, um, $800 in a frame, $400, $500 in shipping is a large piece. So you get 1200 bucks into it. They sell it for 10, they pay you five. You're getting what, what is the orders at 38 taxes are going to take, um, you know, a third of that. So you're about 2,500 bucks on a $10,000 sale. My shows with me doing all the marketing, hiring staff, promo, everything, I think I was at like 27% of cost. And that's how we were able then to create this life where we would just every couple of years put on a big show and make enough to go back and just paint, live. Wow. And so that's a, that's a gallery, but what is an exhibition then? Okay, so yeah, thank you. So then, so a gallery show, you either be part of a group show or have your own show, and they could, they might call it an exhibition. Um, I guess what I did, since it was more of a big one-man show, probably fell into an exhibition, and in, in that it was a an event that would take place periodically. It, it, it's they're pretty similar. I, I don't know if there's a real definitive difference, but okay. So a question for you. You said that when you first met Richard Lack, he said, you're going to study like crazy. You're going to do all this work and you're going to be working a second job in a restaurant, uh, busing tables or serving uh, that part of it. Now you're you're just talking about doing the shows and getting successful and 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 doing all of that. Jeff. Prior to that, to make ends meet, did you have other jobs as as Richard Lack had said? Did you know that America's original manufacturer of canoe and kayak stabilizers was recently featured on Fox & Friends? Spring Creek Manufacturing was recognized on Fox News for being a leader in the made in the USA industry for their top quality truck racks, the world's best camp saw, and their assortment of water sports equipment, including stabilizers for canoes, kayaks and stand-up paddle boards as well as their canoe seats and motor mounts enjoy an exclusive 15 percent off yes 15 percent off your next online order at springcreek.com with the code leader 15 that is l-e-a-d-e-r one five exclusions apply now back to the podcast um, you know, you know, I, I well, sort of, I, and I, I, you know, when I said we were, it was successful shows, that was, that's a relative statement. That meant we could, you know, buy food, <laughs> but, um, in the early years. So I think for, we did the starving artist thing for about 10 years, but I, um, when I was at the atelier, I started teaching the, uh, night classes. So typically, and this is how our school is structured also is that, you know, we, we have the full-time students who are real dedicated and they're here for four or five years. And we, you know, we pass on this, this uh, craftsmanship. But we also offer it to anybody on this, off the streets to come in, you know, one, two, three nights a week, whatever they want to sign up for. And we don't water it down. We teach them the exact same things. It's just parsed out more slowly. And um, I think people have a thought maybe or a misconception that uh, I'll never become an artist. It's too hard. That's the beauty of this training that had been passed on is, I mean, they started with kids back in the, you know, Renaissance and medieval times. You just start with the most basic fundamental things and you just progressively, they get a little bit harder. So you don't come to a school like this and jump in and be expected to paint some great painting. We'll show you how to sharpen a pencil and make a line, you know? And, and um, so the Atelier Lac had a, just a thriving 
night school. So I, I taught there. Um, and, and then, and then I was real fortunate where a, a, an older student had graduated a number of years earlier, uh, decided to open her own school, a sister school. And so she asked me to be the uh, assistant director and head instructor. So I jumped into that right out of, after I graduated and did that for several years. So that was wonderful. I had a studio there. Um, so that, that kept me going. And then I just decided, um, I guess by that point, we started the shows. I, um, my wife was in the first batch of students. Um, I, I joke her grades started slipping and she got friendly. But um, anyway, we, we, we fell in love, got married, and that's when we started doing the shows. And kind of within about four, four years or so, felt we were doing well enough where we could get out of the city, cities where, again, I'd been camping up in Duluth a lot. Uh, then uh, my, my grandparents, both sets of my grandparents were um, farmers. And so we'd go weekends and summers, stay there and play in the woods. And so I just wanted to get out of the cities. My wife grew up in Roseau. Um, she knows the Brattons, by the way. Um, and uh, she um, grew up in a cabin in the woods. So basically, we just found an old school up on the South Shore of Lake Superior and moved up there as soon as we could, thinking we could market long distance in the Twin Cities, which we couldn't. <laughs> we just about starved. <laughs> we, but you had, I, you had the cabin in the woods, though. Yeah, well, actually, it was a it was a seventy five hundred square foot old school building that the town of Cloverland was giving away almost. So we we picked that thing up. That's a great studio space and it had its own gymnasium. So, so let's let's first of all, I want to go back. And so for our, our special guest for our listeners today is Jeffrey T. Larson, professionally classically trained artist, painting art. But this all, it's, it's, it's ironic to me because this started because of football. You know, you, you said that in football, we took this, this, this tour and art, literally, you got the bug from art and you had mentioned that you were doing some clay, but then you had also uh, gone and done some studying and bronze casting and finishing. So you kind of came full circle on that to become a very, uh, uh, you know, well accepted and, and and professional artists that now you're in business and and I want to move forward to all of a sudden in Duluth, Great Lakes Academy of Fine Art. Tell us about that, your school. Jeff, tell us about the church you bought and how all of that went about and, and the successes of your school because now uh if I had to say, you're considered the master. You're the new Richard Lack. Yeah, that's another way of saying I've just gotten a lot older. <laughs> so, but um, yeah, so I, I taught those, you know, first first years, and then decided I was just going to focus and, and work on being an artist, and that's what I did for the next twenty five plus years, um, and it was wonderful. So we we had three kids, um, and our eldest. Um, we, we left, so my wife's an artist, uh, her dad's an artist. My mom then ended up going to the same school I went to after I graduated. So he was kind of like condemned from birth, you know, that apple just dropped and didn't, didn't move an inch. So he, <laughs> yeah, pretty early on was, was quite amazing and um, decided he was gonna follow in the footsteps, you know, become an artist. Uh, and so he decided he was gonna go back to the same school I went to, which was now being run by Two of my fellow colleagues, Richard Lack, had, has passed away, and um, and so I I approached them. I said, 
one, I just want to be kind of continue being part of my son's life during this stage. And I, I said, Hey, let's make a deal. I'll come down and I'll teach for free, you know, once a, one, once a month, but you can maybe cut his tuition a little bit and we'll just kind of work out this deal. So it was great. I'd come and hang out with my son and teach and, and I'd be giving these critiques. And now at this point, I mean, I've been, you know, I've been an artist for 30 years. I had uh, magazine covers, one international competition. I mean, I, I, you know, I was doing fine, you know, I kind of knew what I was doing. And I'd be critiquing these advanced students. I'd be listening to what I'd say. Well, I think you should do this and X and Y and Z. And I'd be listening to myself thinking, that makes no sense. <laughs> this really doesn't. And I'd go back and for the next month, I'd go, why did that sound so goofy to me? That's what I do. And I'd think about it. So it really was, uh, I, I gave myself a whole other education. In the four or five years he studied, I completely changed the way I paint. I think it was just kind of by having a good coach or by teaching yourself verbally instead of intuitively just doing what you do changed everything. Well, he was, um, uh, when he graduated, he was kind of offered the opportunity maybe to continue on and eventually someday maybe even take over the school. I was also offered to um, co-run a school in Florence, Italy. I was kind of contemplating that. Um, And then so we just kind of thought, well, you know what? Maybe we should just form our own school. And I kind of wanted him to have his own uh, experience like I did opening a school and forced to verbalize, you know, uh, everything he had just learned. We really both have the passion to give back. I mean, if we hadn't had the training we had, we'd be nobody. I mean, it just, uh, it just, it's, it's such a game changer. It's just so foundational, essential, and just so rare that we just wanted to pass this on. And, and so anyway, we started looking for a building. I've been associated with a number of other schools and happily since when I was a student, there's kind of a, a mini renaissance going on of schools forming around the world. So there's probably a good 20, 20 to 30 pretty solid schools with a dozen really good schools around the world right now passing this on. And, um, and I've, I've seen their business models and, and most of them rent and, you know, they said the old thing where you, you, you know, you, you buy a, you find a building to rent in the worst part of town and, and then cafes open up and restaurants and pretty soon it's gentrified and you get kicked out. And I just seen that happen over and over. So I was determined I was going to buy something and, and create a business model that was sustainable. Started looking around all over. This is when Lincoln Park was still cheap. And, uh, but a buddy told me about old St. Peter's church in little Italy up on the hill here and uh, drove by and had been shut down and, and not quite condemned, but they had, cut out the radiators and turn the electricity off, I don't know, three, four, five years earlier. And unbeknownst to me, there's a real battle going on to save it. I was just looking at it that if I was to design and build a school and build it, it'd be 40 by 100, two floors, north facing windows, tall ceilings. That's what this was. Just wouldn't have stone, <laughs> you know? And um, so we were kind of doing our due diligence and thinking about it. And it was in rough shape. I had an architect looking at it and we just weren't sure. And, um, Anyway, it, it, we were forced to make a bid early and, it, and all the um, advertising that the roof was shot and that it moved off its foundation proved to be wrong. And so we got it and it, we um, secured financing and spent the next 18 months with uh, a whole bunch of tradespeople and myself and my son and my wife and some good friends working for 18 months, six, seven days a week, 12, 18 hours a day. And pretty soon we had a school. <laughs>
you know, Jeff, one of the things I was looking at uh, some some videos that you've done and some podcasts, and and one of the things was a theme that I got from it was not to be afraid of hard work. And obviously, all of your steps of the way have taken a, an extraordinary amount of energy and effort to get there. And now you're starting your own business. You're buying your own building, which needed a tremendous amount of work. Talk about some of the challenges that getting into business as an entrepreneur, you've been an entrepreneur, but now as a owning your own school to train others and buying this old church, some of the challenges from when you bought it all the way up to today. And we'll talk about uh, uh, through through the uh, from 2020 to 2022, everything had its challenges in the world as well. And and uh, how the heck do you train people in art when uh most people are social distancing. So uh, kind of a mouthful, but let's talk about those things. Yeah, well, the um, the building, like I said, was it was a mess. It was it was just nasty and moldy. There was a, like a ice waterfall coming down the corner. But I, you know, I I found I found good uh, good plumbers, good electricians, um, friends that had good experience uh, building, and so we just I think you know I think the bottom line was sort of ignorance is bliss. Um, slightly, the, the school I had mentioned, the school building we had bought and lived in, we did the same thing for many, many years. So I had, I had some experience myself in carpentry and basic, you know, construction, this and that. So I was able to do quite a bit of it. Um, but you know, you, we just jumped in, you mentioned hard work. It's like name anybody that does anything that succeeds, that doesn't work hard, you know, it just is what it is. And so, um, I guess the challenge 18 months, it, it, it did get long, um, we ran out of money before we could mud the place. So me and my son did most of that. And I hate mudding. And, you know, um, but I guess, you know, looking back, it, uh, it could have been a lot worse. We had, we had, we'd gotten bids on a roof that he said, it's going to be at least 50,000, maybe $250,000. I think it's shot. My wife has an uncle that um, is in charge of all the buildings for the North Dakota university system and, and started out as a roofer. We call Craig. Hey, listen, can you, can you give us some advice? He says, you know what? We haven't seen each other. Before. I'm going to come and visit you. He drove down that in two weekends and $600 later, we had the entire roof fixed. It was 12 little holes. <laughs> that was it. So we, we fell into some really good fortune over and over like that. Um, but I think, you know, we just had a lot of people working really hard and it just pulled together. What does it take to set up a business like yours? So you have your church, you've redone the church. It's, you know, your business to have your school what does the curriculum look like? You're using the same curriculum, uh, I'm assuming, that you went through because that's an old uh, style of, of training. But are you doing part-time? Are you doing full-time? Are you doing people who are advanced, people that are beginners? And then how do you even set it up? Yeah, so this, you know, the, what gets passed on is the principles and foundational training, but everybody kind of gives their own little take on it. There's some things that are quite similar from school and atelier and academy across the board, but there's, you know, uh, it's like in anything, you know, you could go to a chef school, different chef schools, and there's just going to be different philosophies, techniques, approaches, personalities. And, and, and that's what adds all the spice to life, you know? And, and so we, we, you know, I took what I learned, I took what I read, I uh, took what I've done. And then I also, I don't have all the answers. I, I looked around and as I mentioned, there was a number of other good schools 
um, with run by people I really respect, friends of mine, and I basically stole some of their techniques and some of their ideas. And so I tried to put together the school I wish I had gone to. And, um, and my son was very helpful in that too, with his experience. So basically it's, um, it's still a small little world in our world. We're kind of like the, when modernism came in, they came in with a vengeance and kind of pushed, I don't want to be derogatory in any way, but they kind of pushed us down to stand, stand up taller maybe. And, and so we kind of all went underground in a way. And, and so we kind of feel like it's a new avant-garde. We're coming full circle. And so anybody who is passionate about learning this type of work, especially with the internet now, they can find out what's going on in the world. And they talk to one person and they'll tell, well, here's where you need to talk to. Here's where you need to go. So we were still just trying to, you know, clean up the mess here. And we were getting people applying right and left. And um, so that part was actually far easier than I thought. We formed night schools and, and we have we've had some students uh, from the area who's been studying with us for four or five years doing just phenomenal work. Um, we've recently, in the last couple of years, added a children's class, which is uh, an amazing uh, opportunity. I have a friend that um, same training as I had, uh, but had a passion for teaching kids. Most schools and, and going back for the last hundred years, there's been different training methods for kids and they kind of work. It's more of a watered down system of what we do. Uh, he recognized that and he dug deeper into the medieval times. How did they, that's when they were training eight, nine, 10 year olds in the Renaissance. It was more, you know, older, you know, 18, 19, 20 year olds. And he actually found literature on how they train these kids. And so he instituted that into his school in the Twin Cities. It's been a roaring success for 25 years to the point where uh, George Lucas from Star Wars heard about it, flew him out. There was talks of him building a university around my friend's training methodologies for kids. And then something happened with the real estate in LA or <laughs> somehow I got sidelined. But I mean, we, um, we were the only other people that have access to his patent on, on this training. And so I, we, uh, my wife runs that program, and it's just uh, these little 10-year-old, 12-year-old kids, you wouldn't believe the work they're doing. It's just been really fun and fascinating, and I would have killed for something like that when I, if I was a kid. So that's kind of our main structure. The, the full-time program, we'd be, we'd be completely full if we had 16 students. We take four a year. Um, more than that, I don't think we could give them the hands-on that they need. Uh, and they basically, like I said, they show up it's, um, from nine to five every day. We, the studio's open 24 seven. I encourage them to stay late, come on weekends. Um, they just can't get enough hours and work hard enough to get as good as they need to be. Um, and we just start with the most basic. Here's how you, literally, here's how you sharpen a pencil correctly. Here's how you draw a simple line. Here's how you then uh, see values. How do you see color? How do you do composition? And it just slowly builds on itself uh, over the course of four or five years. Wow. So you just hit on something there on, on the amount of hours that they need to practice your trade. And I want to bounce back to the business of selling your paintings. Uh, first of all, I want to ask, is there an average time that goes into doing a painting? Um, no, not really. I mean, if I do a, if, if you go on, I, you know, I paint everything from life. We don't really work from photographs at all. Uh, so if I was to paint a landscape, I go out at three o'clock on a sunny day and set up in the same spot. And an hour and a half later, the sun's changed enough where that's not the same scene anymore. So I'll come back the next day and the next day. 
And, you know, to do a little sketch, you can do it in a day or two, a little quick portrait, maybe a couple, two, three days. But I just finished one painting I worked on for five years. I'd say most of my paintings take three to six months. Wow. And so here's, that just blows me away because then how in the heck, you know, a business, let me stop for a second. A business like ours is pretty simple. We take labor, we take raw materials, and we build a product, we have our cost of goods sold, bills of materials, we price the product, we have a retail price. How do you price your, your product then? It's, it's, it's just, a, it's an ongoing good question um, that we have with our students every year. My story was I just started out really cheap and I sold a lot of stuff. And, and um, but there's a funny dynamic that takes place too. I, I remember I had uh, hit a point um, early on where I had a lot of work and I had really cheap prices, I thought, and nothing was selling and that's embarrassing. So I thought, you know, I'm gonna triple my prices and if they don't sell, that makes sense. They're too expensive. <laughs> I just feel better about it. And I did that and they all sold. So there, there's, there's the funny thing about art. There's no intrinsic value. I mean, it's, it's a it's piece of canvas with color smeared on it. You know, it's not like a car or something you can use. And so it's all perceived value. And um, and so part of it is in value in it is is what one what the market can bear. Two, what is your perceived competition? You know, people that you consider yourself similar to, or what are, what are they getting for it? Um, and really, I just to answer it most simply, I just once I kind of got an established set of prices for average type of work, you know, a still life, a portrait, a still life, and so on. Then every um, every year and a half, two years, I'd, I'd go up. 10%. And so over the last 40 years, it's added up to be where you don't have to sell as many paintings and you do fine. Um, and hopefully your marketing's kept up with it and you expanded your, you know, your list and your reputation's grown and so on. Um, that was one reason I worked with galleries. I had that ongoing show I did, but prior to the internet, the only way you got advertising was really if you were advertising a magazine, that was the Holy grail. And, and, Galleries were the ticket. You know, either you got an editor to write a story about you, which I was fortunate to have. That happened a number of times. But to take out an ad back in the 80s, 90s was a full page. It was like 3500 bucks. which but what is that now? You know, that's 10 grand. Or I couldn't afford that. So I'd work with some galleries out on the East Coast. Um, and that's how they earned their 50% in a sense, was that they would take out ads and they would spread my name nationwide and internationally. And so I kind of... Those were my two venues. So it cost me more, but I gained my marketing through the galleries and then I made my profits more or less uh, from my own personal private shows. I, I have so many questions here because and I know I'm bouncing all over, but before we move on, Jeff, tell people how they find your website and what social medium handles do you have that our listeners can go and they can see what your school's about, what your art's about and learn more about you as an artist. Yeah, no, thank you. Uh, so yeah, my website's Jeffrey, uh, jeffreytlarson.com. Um, uh, I'm on Instagram under the same name. Uh, the Great Lakes Academy of Fine Art is where you can find the school. Um, but also, if you go to YouTube and punch in Jeffrey T. Larson documentary, um, a, a filmmaker out of England did an hour-long documentary on the light, our life, and the school, and so on. And if you're really curious, you can you can watch that also. 
Well, let's talk about that a little bit because what a segue, because that was my next question for you. Tell us about the documentary from 2018 and, and on your life and all that. And how did that come about? And how are how did it all, you know, how did you feel the outcome of it was? Yeah, no, it was it was really a fun, a fun thing. It was um so uh, an artist friend of mine uh who also he's he's really quite a young entrepreneur. He um does a lot of film, um, it does a lot of marketing, excuse me, along with his painting, but he um, formed a group where they were doing um, educational training videos, um, you, you know, with uh, the artists that he respected or whatever. So they, he and his, uh, the, the, the videographers from England and he had a partner and they came and filmed me uh, for a week showing how I paint, how I paint still likes. We were just sitting around the fire one day, we're talking and brought up, uh, I don't know, if, yeah, if you, if you haven't seen the, uh, the show Chef's Table on Netflix, um, it was something that we serendipitously both had fallen into and seen. It's, it's basically a really well-filmed, really done, well-done hour-long episodes where they kind of dive into a Michelin star chef's um, life. And it's just how was he trained, how they get their restaurant. Just, and it's, but the filming, the pace, the music, it just it had this really wonderful edge. And so we were talking about how we loved that show of all things, when you know, you should do something about artists, like something like that on artists. Well, he went back and, and they talked and they said, let's give it a shot. And so they invited me to be the first, uh, do the first pilot film. So they, so we worked on this, not really so much a script, but they had me dive into all my history and find photographs and this and that for about a year. And then they came back and we filmed it uh, over the course of like, I don't know, seven days, 10 days. And then Joe Hawkins is a filmmaker and he went back and, and took my ramblings and hundreds of hours of film and turned it into this documentary. And what worked out wonderfully, that was the first year that Catalyst, Catalyst Festival had their first big event in Duluth. And so we thought, why not? Let's submit it. And we actually won Best, best Documentary in Minnesota or something like that. Or, um, and so that led to where we were actually having conversations with Hulu, Bravo, uh, Oprah's channel. We had a lead to get to Netflix. And because our goal was to turn this into a series, just like the chef's table. And then COVID hit. <laughs> so that was one thing that by time we, we just lost all momentum and all contacts and, and, and all of interest from the, from the different uh, places. And so that, that ended that, but we got a nice little film out of it. So yeah, I will. You know what? I watched it and it was awesome. And I think our our viewers should watch it and they can find it on your website, Jeffrey T. Larson. Nope, you have to go to YouTube. You have to go to YouTube and punch in Jeffrey T. Larson documentary. Well, I must have done it through there because I was able to see it. And, and uh, I did. I got there through your website. And actually, once I started watching your videos, which I thought was awesome, um, it must have kicked me over to YouTube. So I was able to, to see it. It's really cool. I gotta go to my website more often, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So folks, our special guest today is Jeffrey T. Larson, and you can find him at jeffreytlarson.com. He owns the Great Lakes Academy of Fine Art in Duluth, Minnesota. You need to go and look up his website if you have any interest in art at all. Uh, amazing career, amazing person. This has been a blast. But we are going to switch gears now. We're going to get away from career, Jeff. We're going to go to what we call our packed question segment, because we're just going to learn a little bit about you 
as a person. Now, this was about your career, but we're going to learn a little about you. So I'm going to start with this. Other than Jeff Larson, who's your favorite artist? <laughs> That's a tough one. It changes every week. I would, <laughs> so it's going to be an, an obscure artist named Jacqueline Soroya. He was a Spanish artist that I, I lived, you know, I think he passed away in 1920. But he just, no one in the history of the world has ever painted outdoor figures, outdoor flesh. He, he painted a lot of mothers and babies on the beach of Spain and Valencia. And it just, you squint when you look at those paintings. And uh, it's been my passion for 30 years since I first saw his show to try to figure out how he did what he did and, and in my own little way, try to try to do it my, my way. But uh, he's the one that I keep coming back to just the most amazed. Second would be an artist called Velasquez. Uh, lived in the 1600s and just the greatest of the greats. There you go. Two up to your artists. And, and Jeff Larson, come on, we got to throw that in there. What is the favorite place that you have ever traveled? You know, it's, yeah, you know, we've been around the world and, and, and a lot of beautiful places, but you know, I, what's hitting me now is I, I, I think the time's up in the Quetico when the sun's setting and you just finished frying up some fish and it's just a perfect evening. And it's, I, I think that it's probably my happy place. I mean, um, you know, Switzerland's nice and you know, there's other places, but you know, that the Quetico is just magical. Well, tomorrow night I will, uh, I'll be within a mile of the Quetico at this time. I'm lucky you. I'm going to be very lucky and I'm going to be watching those sunsets that you're talking about. Jeff, favorite movie? Oh, Gladiator. Just so don't I keep every two, three years, I, I make my son-in-laws watch it even. It's like, okay, listen, you can be in our family, you're watching Gladiator. It's just, <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> rules are rules, and if they're going to be part of the family. And as we stay around the arts here, who's your favorite band or musical artist? Oh, boy. Um, you know, I think it's funny. You kind of go right back to high school. I'd, I'd say the band that I regret not seeing live with the, with the, the members was the Eagles. I think I probably like the Eagles longer than any other band more consistently. So I'll, I'll say that. Well, I'll tell you what, you can't go wrong there, can you? But you know yeah. what? You and I are from the same genre, so yeah. this yeah. is the same era. And Jeff, what is the best piece of life advice that you have ever received? You know, I think you know, never give up. Just never give up. You know, just don't quit. I don't even remember. I think I heard it from a lot of people. <laughs> but I, it just it's the one that... Um, I would tell our students that the only way you can fail as an artist is if you quit. If you don't quit, you won't fail. And who knows what's going to happen the next day or the next week or the next year, what breakthrough you'll have. You want to fail, quit. Don't quit, you won't fail. Oh, that is great advice, Jeff. And folks, our special guest today, Jeffrey T. Larson. He's a professional, classically trained artist. He owns Great Lakes Academy of Fine Art. You can go on his website, jeffreytlarson.com, and you can also find him on Instagram and on YouTube, and you can see the documentary from Joe Hawkins' East Oak Studio, which is really a fun, fun watch. I, I, was, I, was, I just really enjoyed watching it and learning more about you prior to doing this today, Jeff. Thank you so much for being here today. You're really inspirational and and 
for a different type of business, you are certainly leader of the pack. No, you know, I really appreciate you inviting me on your show. I, I listen to it all the time and what you do with your, with your stores and, and the Duluth pack. I mean, I've been, I've been using your product since I was a little kid. So anyway, it's a pleasure to meet you and, uh, and to be on your show. Jeff, thanks for being here. And folks, until next time, unplug from the indoors and recharge in the outdoors. Thank you for listening to another episode of Leader of the Pack. Don't forget to rate this podcast. And we would certainly be grateful if you'd give us five stars. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Follow Duluth Pack on social media at Duluth Pack. And shop online at DuluthPack.com. Don't forget to support American jobs and buy American man.